Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Today, today we're getting back to Neumann's greatest pupils. Pretty interesting episode today. Uh, we're jumping back into uh, Eric Neumann this time around. Um, so, the cha- the last chapter, basically, in the first part of this book, is about the parting of the world parents, the separating of the world parents. This goes back to this myth, uh, which we've talked about ad nauseum, but let me just recap for you. There's this idea that's often called the Ouroboros. It's an idea that is associated with an image, and it's associated with a story, with a myth. And not just any myth, but a, a creation story. And not just any creation story, almost all of them. Um, have some reference to this image, the Ouroboros. It's something that represents the union of opposites. And it's supposed to represent whatever it is that was that existed before existence. You know, whatever whatever potential makes reality possible, whatever existed before. You know, the origin of everything, the time before time, um, you know, something like the Aboriginal dream time that they talk about in their myths. It's, it's this unconscious period of, of time, this unconscious way of existing. Uh, ex- like I said, existence before existence, this primordial thing that the cosmos emerges from. And it's always depicted as a union of opposites, like the, the yin and the yang from Taoism come to mind. Um, the image of the serpent swallowing its tail is another is another image, but the idea is really that it's self-created, like the serpent would be. If it's swallowing its tail, it, it ends and begins within itself. You know, it's self-created, self-subsisting. Um, it's something like God. You know, you would easily, easily make the connection. And it's associated with creation. So again, it's it's something like God that we're trying to describe. Um, the yin and the yang shows this idea of opposites in union, because that's what we see in the yin and the yang. We see a white side and a black side, and a little little black dot on the white side, a little white dot on the black side. And the idea is opposites together, opposites in union. And the little splash of color in the black and in the white uh, is supposed to represent the transition. Um, you know, that what is, what is good can become evil, um, what is light can become dark, what is conscious can become unconscious. What is feminine can become masculine. You know, whatever 
whatever opposites you want to use to understand it, um, when you try to understand them together, when you bring opposites together, there's this cognitive dissonance that we experience. It's like not quite sure what that means or not quite sure how to make sense of it. You know, it's like the division of opposites is what we call sense. It's what we call categories. It's the way in which we can be conscious of something, the way in which we can understand something. And that's where our knowledge comes from. And, you know, knowledge is very important to us, you know. it's So it's this really interesting symbol, this Ouroboros. It's, it's also connected, um, you know, if you take the opposites of consciousness and unconsciousness and you put them together and you try to understand what that might be, um, you know, it, it is a paradox. Um, but it is supposed to show you that, that there's consciousness within the unconscious and uh, the unconscious within within consciousness, that, that, that there's this mutual coexisting sort of relationship involved with opposites, and that it's necessary to release them. It's necessary for opposites to no longer be in union in the Ouroboros, because when, when they separate, you know, when opposites separate, what we have is the capacity for consciousness, the capacity for experience and for knowledge. Everything that we think of when we think of our lives and we think of the cosmos, um, that's what separating the Ouroboros makes possible. So it's a symbol for the coming of consciousness, but it's also a symbol for the birth of the cosmos. And so you have this very interesting parallel of the origin of consciousness and the origin of the cosmos as though they're one story. And that's very, very cool. Um, because it makes you ask the question, if they're the same story, might they be the same thing? And what I mean by that is what we call consciousness and what we call God. Are they the same thing? How are they not the same thing? You know, think about that. Um, and so what Neumann does is he tells us these mythological stories, but he's always paralleling it with psychological stories and the history of consciousness and the history of God really are the same and we they inform one another and it's really to me there's almost nothing could be more interesting and you know the, the first bit of this was really all about the Ouroboros and understanding that it it has this connection to uh, what it's like for us or what we might imagine that it was like for us to exist before we were conscious. So you can imagine maybe yourself as a fetus existing within your mother, not being exactly your own person yet, but, but only a part of your mother. And, and the world that you exist in, the womb, that's the universe as far as you're concerned. It contains everything, yourself included, and it nurtures you, and it comforts you, and it provides for all your needs. And you don't have to want anything because your needs are, are met you know, you don't have a will of your own, and so you don't have an identity of your own. You're just part of your mother, and there's some... It's like you exist unconsciously within your mother in this blissful state, you know? You can't hardly imagine a more blissful state. And 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 that idea of this of our existence before we were conscious is something like what existed in reality before the cosmos, and there's a parallel there. And the stories we tell, the myths we tell about it, are really stories that are, explain our own psychological development. The birth of our own consciousness is wrapped up in these mythological stories. 
And the parallels to me is just striking and powerful and meaningful. And I love it. So that brings us to, um, well, to the, the end of the Ouroboros, which we started getting into in the last Neumann episode, where we were talking about how the images in, in religion, they stop showing this great mother goddess. And instead, they start showing a goddess in partnership with a god, or a goddess in partnership with an animal, or a goddess in partnership with a child. And if you look at the history of religion, you can see the images from the Stone Age start to change into this fractured deity. It's not just the Great Mother Goddess anymore. You know, it's not just the Ouroboros anymore. It's the Great Mother Goddess with her powers that used to be all wrapped up in one identity, fractured and split between a god and a goddess, or between a god and a goddess and a child. And that's the image you see with, for instance, Madonna and Child, or Mary holding the baby Jesus or the goddess Isis from ancient Egypt holding the baby Horus. All those images are identical. And what they show is the power of the deity, the image of the deity, fractured. It's no longer one thing, but two things. Either a god and a goddess. They they usually call them consorts, you know, like a husband and wife. Or, Or you have this goddess and her child. And so, again, whatever, whatever the child represents used to be part of the goddess. And so at some point in history, it got separated off. And uh, Neumann talks about how it must be where when consciousness tries to emerge to stand on its own. You know, maybe it's your consciousness trying to, trying to develop and form and break free of, you know, the, the greater reality of your mother when you're a fetus. You know, at some point, it's not a, it doesn't have an ego. It doesn't have a sense of self, and then, and then, at some point, it does. We don't know. We don't know where that point is, but it does. How does that happen? How do you get two consciousnesses from one consciousness? You know. And uh, and so this image of the great goddess with her with her divine son that was the last stage before we get to the one we're going to talk about today. And this is when the this is when the burgeoning consciousness, when the new consciousness, you know, the, the fetal consciousness is starting to develop and, and separate itself from its mother and become its own self. It, it struggles to do that. It's like, I don't know what quite is involved with that, but it's not easy to do or it would happen immediately. You know, it, it's difficult. It's almost like a will has to develop and try and try and try to, I don't know what, make itself exist. And as strange as that sounds, it reminds me of a mystic experience that I had. It reminds me of this vision that I had once of struggling to understand what it was that I was, you know, because in that experience, I was only awareness. I was only consciousness and there was nothing else except for this thought that I couldn't, I couldn't let go of. This thought kept repeating and repeating within my mind and it was all that existed, just an awareness of this thought. And the thought was a question. What is this? What is this? And the question I was asking was, what is this I'm experiencing? What am I? And, and what is this experience? What in the fuck is going on? What is reality? What is consciousness? But I didn't, in that state of mind, I didn't know any of that. Not that I do now, but I certainly didn't in that state. All I knew about in that state was that I was aware. Didn't know what my awareness was. Didn't know what there was to be aware of. I didn't know, knew nothing else, only that I was. 
not exactly that I was either, just that being was, just that experience was. And I asked the question, what is this? Over and over and over again. And eventually that question became, what am I? Because I realized that there was somebody asking the question, what is this? So suddenly my question changed. It's not what is this experience, is who is this thing having the experience? What is that? And I imagine that that is like what it must be like to, to become a consciousness of your own, to break free from the consciousness that was your mother and father, and to have your own, to develop it. You know, like I don't know how that happens. I don't know what the mechanics are. I don't know what it feels like, what the experience is like. But we tell myths about it. We tell stories about it. And the strange thing is that the stories we tell are so similar that it's freaky. And that brings me to the opening here. The first bit we're going to call the principle of opposites. And Neumann does what he often does. Well, he'll, he'll tell us a myth. Um, so he's not going to do it right away. So let me just open this up and then we're going to tell this myth. And the myth that we're going to talk about is a Polynesian myth from the people that live uh, the indigenous people that live in New Zealand. Maori, they're called, the Maori tribesmen. So it opens up like this. It says the Maori creation myth contains all the elements of the stage of consciousness which follows Ouroboric dominance. Okay, so all he's saying here is what happens next to consciousness at once it frees itself from the Ouroboros, once, once it frees itself from this state of unity, this union of opposites where everything is one in the beginning, when it separates itself from that state and the opposites are born, what's happening? What's, what's next for consciousness? So the Maori story, he says, talks about the separation of the world parents, the splitting off of opposites from unity, the creation of heaven and earth, above and below, day and night, light and darkness, the deed that is a monstrous misdeed and a sin. So that not that interesting? He's painting this up like the Maori version of the story, which we're going to hear next, of the separation of the world parents, the splitting apart of the Ouroboros, and the creation of this world of opposites that we understand, the conscious world. That that was some, some kind of a great sin. And you might imagine if... If the Ouroboros is God, and you've changed God, you've split it open, you've cracked it like an egg, you know, it's, you can see that maybe you've done some sort of damage to God, you know? And maybe, maybe that is some sort of a sin, but what that might be is not easy to pin down. So let's hear the story. Let's hear the myth. Neumann's rendition goes like this. Ragni and Papa, the heaven and the earth were regarded as the source from which all things, gods and men, originated. There was darkness, for these two still clung together, not yet having been rent apart. And the children begotten by them were ever thinking what the difference between darkness and light might be. They knew that beings had multiplied and increased, and yet light had never broken upon them. At last, worn out with the oppression of darkness, the beings begotten by Ragni and Papa consulted among themselves, saying, What shall we do with Ragni and Papa? Then spoke Tenimuhata, the father of forests, Rend them apart, 
and let Rangney stand far above us and Papa lie beneath our feet. Let Rangi become as a stranger to us, but the earth remains close to us as a nursing mother. Tanamuhata planted his head on his mother, the earth, and his feet he raised up against his father, the sky. He strained his back and his limbs in a mighty effort. Now were rent apart, Rangi and Papa, and darkness was made manifest, and light made manifest also. All right, there you have it. There is the Maori creation story, the story of the Ouroboros, two gods, Rangi and Papa, together in union. And just like we talked about in the Babylonian version before about Tiamat and Apsu, you've got those gods, one a male, one a female. Opposites, right? Masculine and feminine, in union. They're together, they're one thing. And because they're joined together, opposites joined together, the man and the woman, what happens in that embrace is a creative act, a sexual act. And so the gods create more gods, right? Rangi and Papa are just churning out gods within themselves. There's nowhere for them to exist because all there is is the one thing, Ragni and Papa. But somehow within them is filled up with all these new creations, all these new gods that are being born. And I don't know, it's crowded in there. I don't know, there's no place to exist in there. For some reason, these other, other beings that are being created have a desire to exist in and of themselves, of their own accord. They want to exist. And to do that, they have to rend apart the opposites. They have to break apart heaven and earth to create the place where we can exist. And in some ways, that place is the earth, right? It's the place where we exist. But in another, in another way of understanding it, it's, it's consciousness. It's the way in which we exist. We exist consciously. So the rending apart of, of these opposites is going to allow, it's going to make being possible. It's going to make conscious reality possible. I also think it's interesting, a couple things here that I'll point out. When it says that, um, let, let Rangi stand far above us and Papa lie beneath our feet. Let Rangi become as a stranger to us. What I want to point out is the use of the word us. And it's not strange here because we're talking about two gods, Rangi and Papa, the heaven and the earth. Um, so you'd expect us to use the word us here. But we also have a parallel to the biblical book of Genesis, which is a parallel to this story, the creation story. And in the creation story, they use the same language in the Bible, right? So let man to become as one of us, knowing good and evil, right? So even in the biblical story, you see this idea of multiplicity in the deity. And it, and it makes you wonder if that, if that doesn't, you know, hearken back to a understanding of that, uh, even the biblical creation story as something like this, as a separation of the Ouroboros. And we're going to see more of that in a minute. All right, so this last bit where he talks about once the gods are rent apart, you know, heaven and earth are separated, the opposites are separated. When that happens, darkness and light are born. See, and you notice that they're opposites. It's like they used to be together, darkness and light. They used to be together in the Ouroboros. Everything was together in one. When the Ouroboros was rent apart, when the world parents were separated, 
they can exist on their own. Opposites can exist on their own as light and darkness. And you have to notice that they're born together because they aren't different things. They're one thing. And they're made manifest at once. So opposites are created from unity. And if we can go back to the Bible for a second, and you, and you might wonder, do we have this separation idea in the Bible? And it's buried a little bit, but you can see it clear as day. You can see it when the biblical creation story says that the heavens and the earth were separated, that light and darkness was separated, that man and woman were separated, right? That's what happens. The day and the night were separated. That's what the Bible tells us. A uh, woman was taken from Adam, from his rib, right? A woman was separated from man. So creation is, even in the Bible, is an act of separation. And that's what we see in the myth of the Ouroboros. Separation of the world parents, that creates the cosmos. It's true in the Bible, true for the Babylonians, and true for the Maori in New Zealand. Isn't that interesting? That brings me to the next section, which we're going to call Light of Consciousness, Light of Creation. All right, it starts like this. Light, the symbol of consciousness, is the prime object of the cosmogonies of all people. The process of creation merges with the coming of the light. Only in the light of consciousness can man know. And this act of conscious discrimination sunders the world into opposites, for experience of the world is only possible through opposites. All right, so there's a whole bunch here. So light comes up, and he, they're just saying, Neumann's just saying here that light comes up in every creation story, all across the world and all across time. When, when the cosmos was created, it always corresponds closely to the emergence of light. So there's something interesting there. Because light not only is associated with the sun, maybe even the Big Bang, um, the birth of stars and, and, uh, and all that sort of thing, um, it corresponds to our, even our scientific cosmogony. Um, it's also a symbol for consciousness, right? Because we see by the light, right? It's light that makes it possible for us to see. And we think of our consciousness very much as, as mitigated by our senses, first and foremost of which is our sight. You know, you're conscious if you open up your eyes and the, and the world is there to you, accessible, behind your eyes. We even consider ourselves to be more or less our brains, like we're a little person sitting behind our eyes. We're not exactly our body. We're more, we're more our brain than our body. So it's, this, is a, this is a, you know, a, a sentiment that most people, I think, will, will understand or appreciate. So the light, of, the light of consciousness is also associated with the light of that was born in creation. And the connection is, is plain, you know? When we, when, when we become conscious, the world, at least for us, begins. So the coming of the light, the coming of consciousness, is very much like the birth of the cosmos. And then he says, only in, in the light of consciousness can man know. And of course, what he's talking about knowledge here, you've got to be conscious in order to have experiences, and that's how you gain knowledge. So there's a connection between light, consciousness, and knowing. So the mind comes into the picture. And then he says the act of conscious discrimination. So that's just noticing, right, that there's now 
darkness and light, that that breaks the world up into opposites. Everything becomes bifurcated. Everything becomes a, a continuum of opposites. And then he says, experience is only possible that way. It's only possible through opposites. And you might wonder, is that real? Is that true? Do you, th- do you think so? Do you think that experience is only possible through opposites? Well, so I would ask you then to imagine that you're all that exists. You don't have a body. There's no objects. It's just your awareness. Do you have any experiences? The best thing you can hope for is to say you experience your own awareness. Right? And even then, what you're doing is arbitrarily separating yourself from your awareness. You're pretending that you're two things. And now you have opposites. You have subject and object. The experience and the thing experiencing it. They're not two things. They're one thing. But we pretend as though they're two. Because that's the only way we can experience anything. You know, what are you? Well, you're everything that everything else is not. You're, you're the thing that only you are. But you can only tell yourself what that is by pointing to other things. It's through this lens of a continuum of relationships between opposites. That's how we understand things. Are you above or are you below this reference? Right? Are you moving faster or slower than this reference? So experience requires a reference. It requires opposition. There's just no arguing with that. Then he goes on. He says, well, you know what? Let me me slow down here for a second. Do I have anything more on this? No, I mean, I think I more or less I think I more or less said it. I, be, I guess what I want to make sure is clear is that that experience requires a kind of dissociation. It requires, like I just said a minute ago, pretending like you're two things rather than one, like you're subject and object. The only way to have an experience is to have a tension between opposites. Subject and object is a good way of understanding that. You have to dissociate yourself into both, right? If you're the only thing that exists, you have to become both subject and object, which is a which is a type of dissociation. It's a splitting of yourself into two. And dissociation causes what well, causes one to exist in relation to reality rather than as a part of it. And this relation is experienced as opposition and relatedness. All right, so Neumann goes on. He says, We can see what identification with the ego really means. Only when we remember the contrasted state of participation mystique ruled by Ouroboric unconsciousness. All right, so let me go back to the Latin here. Participation mystique is just a way for him to talk about what it was like when we were the Ouroboros. Before we were separated from the one, we were participating in the mystery. That's what that means. The mystery is the Ouroboros. It's God. So before our consciousness emerged as a separate from God, uh, when we, if you put yourself back in the state of mind of the fetus, that's ouroboric unconsciousness. That's the place where we were when we had to claw tooth and nail into the world of the ego, into the world of, of being an individual self. So this is, this is what we're talking about here. He says, consciousness is in reality a tremendous achievement. Well, you can imagine if where you are is this 
there's this fetal existence where all your needs are met by your mother and your will is deferred to your mother and nothing, you don't have to do anything. You don't even have to be anything. You're just existing unconsciously. That's a kind of bliss. And for you to turn that away so that you can be your own self, for you to reject all of that bliss is a tremendous achievement. And that's what he's pointing out. He says, in this connection, we would again quote the Upanishads. So now we're going to hear, now we're going to hear this creation story from the Hindu Upanishads. It goes like this. In the beginning, the world was soul, alone in the form of a person. Looking around, he saw nothing else than himself. He said first, I am. He caused that self to fall into two pieces. Therefrom arose a husband and a wife. Isn't that interesting? So the story from the Upanishads is exactly what we heard from the Maori, right? It's in the beginning. There was one thing, and that thing was a soul called Brahman or Atman. That was, that was all that existed. That was what everything, everything was. Until it split itself into two and became two things, opposites. Man and woman, husband and wife, pati and patni in the, in, in the Hindu. So you see this unity in the beginning, this divine unity splitting into opposites. Then Neumann says, existence, existence in participation mystique means that no ego center had yet developed to relate the world to itself and itself to the world. Instead, man was all things at once, and his capacity for change was well-nigh universal. So this is interesting. This is a way of understanding what it might be like to be the Ouroboros. You know, what, what that might be like. And he says it's before an ego has developed. So before you've become a self. So what are you before you become a self? So I could easily say you were God before you became a self, but I'm not sure that helps you understand what I mean. What Neumann says is that before there was an ego, that you didn't relate to the world, and the world didn't relate to you, because you and the world were one thing. And he says man was all things at once, and his capacity for change was well near universal. So to be all things at once, um, you know, there's an interesting image of the Big Bang that comes to mind, the singularity, you know, if you can rewind time and pull all of the all of the galaxies that are spinning out away from each other, if you can rewind that until they're all back together again at the moment of creation, all things were one thing, you know? All space and time was one singularity. So imagine consciousness is something like that. So you might be all things at once, right? All experiences at once, all possible experiences at once. Because... The cosmos hasn't been born yet, right? It's time before time. So you're everything that, that is and ever will be all at once. And he calls, that, he calls that a capacity for change that's universal. I don't know what that sounds like to you. It sounds to me like can become anything, right? That's, that's a word I use to describe God all the time. I call it potentiality. That which can become anything. That is what consciousness was, is, before it becomes 
an ego, before it becomes a self, before it, be- it differentiates and becomes you and I. What we are is potentiality, all things at once. Something like white noise or white light, you know? Something that contains all noises, all colors of light. That's what white light is or white noise. Everything together, the potential to become anything, to be differentiated into anything, an infinite possibility. Have you ever considered yourself to be that? Does that blow your mind? All right, so then Neumann says, The world begins only with the coming of the light, which constellates the opposition between heaven and earth as the basic symbol of all other opposites. So, when the stories of creation tell us that the light came, what that means is that light and darkness were divided. It means opposites were divided. So the moment there's light, you know the light was divided from the darkness. Opposites were separated. And that is a symbol, right? The coming of the light is a symbol for everything's doing this. Everything's splitting into opposites. It's not just light and darkness, right? Because the Ouroboros wasn't just light and darkness. It was all things, all possible things. So not just light and darkness get separated, but an infinity of being is separated into opposites. Up, down, left, right, hot, cold, day, night, male, female, on, on, and on, subject and object, and on and on it goes. And that's the world we inhabit. That's the world we experience. He says, The opposition between light and darkness arranges the world in a continuous series of opposites. Space only came into being when, as the Egyptian myth puts it, the god of the air parted the sky from the earth by stepping between them. Only then was there heaven above and earth below, back, front, left, and right. In other words, only then was space organized with reference to an ego. I love that. Only then was space organized with reference to an ego. So the coming of the light, the the division of opposites, it changes ourselves from somehow being reality to experiencing reality from the point of view of an ego. So I might say, um, I might change this only then was space organized with reference to an ego and say only then was reality experienced with reference to an ego. And that brings us to the next section, which I'm going to call Dissociation, Separation, Many from One. And it starts off in a familiar way, in the beginning. So it goes, in the beginning, everything was double and had a double meaning, as we have seen from the intermingling of male and female, good and bad, in the Ouroboros. But life in the Ouroboros meant being linked at the same time with the unconscious, between which subsisted a continuum that coursed through man like a current of life. He was caught up in this circuit flowing from the unconscious to the world, and from the world back to the unconscious. All right, so there is a tremendous amount going on here. So we get the point about... If opposites emerged from the Ouroboros, then they must have been—they must have existed in the Ouroboros, right? So that's when he says everything has a double meaning. 
or a double existence. Those are the opposites. We know that they were together in the Ouroboros. But then he said, when consciousness, when that emerges from the Ouroboros, you know, when that separates the world parents, separates the Ouroboros, when that happens, there's this process back and forth between the conscious and the unconscious. Because remember, they're opposites. They exist in a continuum. They're not separate things. They're just like light and darkness. They're one thing. So the conscious and the unconscious are existing in this continuum. And it's something like a process he describes as a circuit flowing back and forth between the conscious and the unconscious. And he says something interesting here. Something I've been toying with and I brought up before, but I'll, I'll tell you again. When he said this current, this circuit that, that goes back and forth between the conscious and the unconscious, he, he says that it coursed through man like a current of life. And what that makes me think of is something that I noticed in Carl Jung's Red Book, where he talks about the unconscious and the soul as though they're the same thing. And it just keeps making me entertain the idea that the unconscious is something like the animating force that we would ordinarily call spirit or soul. It's the thing that is responsible for your for your being alive. That that somehow is the unconscious. So the union of the conscious and the unconscious is something like what a human being is, you know? And when he says that the unconscious courses through man like the current of life, I just I just see a, a mirror of what Carl Jung said about the unconscious being something like the animating spirit, the thing that, the thing that runs through the cosmos that that makes it move and and uh, and act and and to live, you know. And this idea of a back and forth between the conscious and the unconscious brings to mind, especially when he uses the word circuit and current, it's it brings to mind something like a machine, something like a like a mechanistic process. And so there's a process going on back and forth between these opposites. And that process is what is what we call, you know, our our conscious experience of, of the world. And I don't know that I understand that really well, but it but it rings f- true. It, it's familiar from some of the things we talked about with like Alfred North Whitehead, understanding God to be a process and his process theology, a process metaphysics. It's something like that. It also resonates with the mystic experience, which tells you everything is one. So this idea of the Ouroboros seems, well, it makes perfect sense. It's what you would expect. All right, the Neumann goes on. He says, originally, thing and place belong together in a continuum. There is no distinction between I and you, inside and outside, or between man and the animals, man and the world. Everything participated in everything else, lived in the same undivided and overlapping state in the world of the unconscious. So that's that's it. That's good. That's a way for us to understand what the Ouroboros must have been like, uh, even just symbolically. Everything, all the potential, uh, you know, that, that all the potential things that might might exist, they existed in the Ouroboros together, in the same place at the same time, undivided and overlapping, something like that. But also, I see something interesting here where he's talking about where he's talking about this original unity and there not being a difference between you and I or between you and the world or between 
you and the animals, right? Man and the animals. And that always strikes me when I see that because so many of the earliest religious images in the world, I have a wall in my podcast studio full of them. Some of these earliest religious images, these cave paintings from Spain and France and and Algeria and and certain places in Africa uh, come to mind. Or what you see is half man, half animal creatures, shaman or therianthropes as they're called. And what they represent is what human beings in the earliest stages of, of civilization decided to paint on these cave walls in this religious context, these images of half-man, half-animal creatures, they're depicting this connection between man and animal that Neumann is, is, is commenting on in this book. See, there was a time before man was separated from animal. There's this unconscious experience of being one with nature. And that's what you see in these cave paintings. You know, the... the um, uh, the Birdman of Lascaux and the and the um, the Sorcerer of Lascaux and uh, you know so many of these um, Therianthrope pictures. I mean, you don't have to go back that far to see them. You can see them everywhere. You can see them in ancient Egypt with with uh, you know Horus the 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 falcon headed god and Sekhmet the cat headed god and you know the Sphinx and uh, the the Lamassu from Babylon and angels from our own Judeo Christian tradition. You know, these mixtures of animal and man. And I've always thought that that those were the earliest religious images. And this is evidence, more evidence, that that is exactly what these images represent. They they represent a time when consciousness was one. And there wasn't a difference between man and the animals. We can step back into into our place, you know, into our into our God shoes, for lack of a better word, and be this therianthrope, this hybrid being, you know, in our fantasies. All right, Neumann goes on. He says the experience of being different, which is the primary fact of ego consciousness, divides the world into subject and object. Right. So the moment you stand on your own as your own separate self, the moment you see yourself as an ego apart from your parents or apart from God or apart from reality, you stand all on your own. The moment that happens, the world is divided between subject and object, you and everything else. And he says, the ego, having now opposed itself to the non-ego, begins simultaneously to constellate its independence of nature as independence of body. So the moment, the moment the ego recognizes it is its own thing, it also recognizes that its body is its own thing, separate from reality, separate from the cosmos. And this, this idea of the ego opposing itself to the non-ego is, is interesting. It's, you know, if, you, if consciousness is the unity, you know, that mystic experience tells you that's the one thing, that's God, that's where everything flows from. If that's the case, the moment you become an ego of your own, a consciousness of your own, you stand in opposition to the unconscious, the non-ego, the place that birthed you, you know, God, the rest of reality. You stand in opposition to the rest of reality. That is the subject-object dichotomy. That's what our lives seem like to us. So it also it also expresses a dissociation, right? If the ego opposes itself to the non-ego, you know, where did the ego come from? 
came from the non-ego. It came from unconsciousness. So it, it opposes itself to the place that birthed it. And, that's, and it's a dissociation. You know, it's a splitting off from its source. And that gives us our first flavor of dualism. It gives us our first flavor of mind and body or mind and spirit, like, like Plato and, and the early Christians and, and probably many of you think that the world is divided that way and that human beings are something like a, a, a body and a mind. And it's this separation, this becoming a self of our own that we have to blame for that assumption, you know, that there's two substances, body and mind. All right, Neumann says, not only do day and night, back and front, upper and lower, inside and out, I and you, male and female, grow out of this development of opposites and differentiate themselves from the original. But opposites like sacred and profane, good and evil, are now assigned their place in the world. Okay, so this is interesting, right? It's like the idea that you become an a self that you that you separate yourself from the rest of reality and you become a conscious thing all by yourself. When that happens, good and evil happen, right? Your separation from from the Ouroboros is also the creation of good and evil. So, what's the explanation there? So you see that story in the in the story of the Garden of Eden. You know, Adam and Eve eat the eat the uh, fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So they become conscious when they eat that apple. They can distinguish between good and evil because they become conscious. That's what the story tells us. But is that a good enough explanation for you? Does that does that make perfect sense to you? Because for me, I think it requires more. I think it makes more sense if you think about it like this. If there's only one thing, let's call that thing God, then there's only one will. It's the will of God. There's only one action. It's the action of God. So there is no good and evil, right? There's only the will of God, and there's only the action of God. No one else there to judge it as good or evil. It's only God. But the moment you break off from God and become your own consciousness, the moment you break off from God consciousness and stand on your own, you're like a little mirror of God, right? Made in the image of God, as the Bible says. When that happens, you have a will of your own. And for the first time, your will has the possibility of not lining up with the will of God, right? That's what we would call evil. When what you want and what the world wants are at odds, right? And when they're lined up and with what you want, and what the and what and the the, the flow of reality is, is going uh, with you know with the grain and you're you're moving along with it, um, that you're gonna call that good, right? Everything's easy and happening as it should. So there's this idea that when Adam and Eve ate the apple and knew good and evil, that they suddenly had the found themselves in the position where they have their own will and not necessarily the will of God any longer. So I think that's I think that's interesting because it brings this moral question into the picture. You know, good and evil, the sacred and the profane. So we'll, we'll dig into this uh, um, more deeply here, but let's let's carry on. Neumann says even today, the opposites lie closer together and are more intimately connected than their actual degree of separation would lead one to suppose. The poles are hard side by side. 
Pleasure turns to pain, hate to love, sorrow to joy, far more readily than we would expect. This can be seen most clearly in children, laughing and crying, starting a thing and stopping it, liking and disliking, follow fast on one another's heels. Both exist peaceably, side by side, and are realized in closest succession. So this is interesting, um, but, it's, but it's illustrating to us how closely related opposites are. Because we think of them to be as far apart as you can possibly be, opposing each other. But Neumann says, the poles are hard, side by side. Pleasure turns to pain. Right? You know that feeling, it, it hurts so good. You know what I mean? Pleasure turns to pain. You know, if you have, a, if you have that, that particular family of sexual kink, you might, you might relate to it that way, that pain can be pleasurable, something like that. How about hate to love? You know, the people that you love, if they wrong you, how much worse that hurts, you know? Or how hating somebody might turn out to be some sort of a secret admiration, right? You want to be like that person, but you pretend that you don't like them because why? Because you're jealous, that, that sort of thing. You see how closely related hate and love are, pleasure and pain are. Sorrow and joy, Jesus Christ, do you have children? If you have children, you know what, you know what the sorrow and joy bit's like. You see them, you're so proud of them. You know, you see the potential that they are and what they're becoming. And it's magical and it, it, it puts you in awe of it. And at the same time, it reminds you of your own mortality and it reminds you of their mortality. And it, and it, and it makes you, it cripples you. It's sorrow and joy at the same time. It's happy tears. That's what he's talking about. Opposites are not as far apart as they can be. They're side by side. All right, then he says, the split between inside and outside is archaic, <clears throat> an archaic man and the child is no more complete. All right, I want to stop here just to say, a lot of times back in the uh, late 1800s, early 1900s, you would hear people, scientists, that talk about primitive tribal people people that live similar to the way the rest of the world lived in the Stone Age, let's say. So a lot of really primitive tribes. They're going to call them archaic or primitive. And they're going to relate their state of mind to children. And there's a lot of people that would say that that's racist today and that it's not a fair comparison. Um, I don't think that the intention was to be racist at all. I don't think Neumann was racist at all. Um, I don't can't believe I'm even, I'm even taking time out of this podcast to make that point clear. Um, but he's using that language. So I just want to point out that what he means when he talks about archaic people and children is that they have a similarly sophisticated worldview. You know, like, um, I guess culture and the state of living of primitive people never necessitated, um, you know, a, a certain level of abstract thinking. They never necessitated, um, you know, a lot of the sophisticated and complicated thinking that exists in, you know, industrialized uh, places and in modern places. So they thought differently. And one of the things that is, is interesting to science is that the way they think and the way that children think 
they have, there's some parallels there. That's not at all to say that primitive people are, are dumb or they're like children mentally. It's not like that. It's to say that the way they un- understand the world and the way they interface with the world is similar. And so we can, even though we don't have a lot of primitive tribes around anymore, we can still look at children and see that behavior. So that's why he's making this connection. And you can try to do that yourself if you don't have if you don't have any experience of what primitive tribal life is like. You probably know what children are like, you know. And the point he's making is that the split between inside and outside for a child or a primitive person is not complete. They live in this world that's more blended. So even though the opposites have been separated and people all experience their lives like that, there's more of a blending going on of the conscious and the unconscious. There's more of a blending going on of these opposites in their experience. And you can definitely see that in children. And I don't have to give you examples because he does. He says this, The fancied playmate is real and unreal at once. Right? That's, that's an imaginary friend. Children would like nothing better than a playmate who's both real and unreal at once. You see the blending there. He says, like everything else, and the image in the dream as real as the reality outside. And you can imagine a child, there is sort of a blending of the dream world and, and the real world. You know, they have no problem bringing in magic and mystery into their experience of the world. They have no problem doing that. You know, there's no cognitive dissonance for a child to do that. So Neumann says here, so-called external reality has not yet made us forget the equally powerful inner reality. So there's something about that. There's something about this mysterious unconscious world that that we carry along with us that children and maybe primitive, you know, uh, tribal people are, are more closely linked to. They experience more. And as we get older, as we differentiate our consciousness more, um, we have less ability to do that, you know? So being like a child is something that rings from the Bible. And so I just have to tell you, there's a verse in Matthew that goes like this. Except ye turn and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And later on in Matthew, it is those who are childlike that the kingdom of heaven belongs. So it makes you wonder, what does he mean by the kingdom of heaven? Does he mean something like the God part of us, like the unconscious? Um, That's definitely not a traditional biblical reading of it, but I wonder. Because it's to become childlike and to see more of the divine in the world and more of the world in the divine, you know? To see the world like a child does or like an animistic tribal person would, you know, imbued with spirits, imbued with God, you know? I like that. That brings me to the next section, which I'm going to call the fall and original sin. It goes like this. The transition from the Ouroboros to the adolescent stage was characterized by the emergence of fear because the ego felt the supremacy of the Ouroboros as an overwhelming danger. All right, so this is the idea of, of becoming a standalone being, you know, having an ego, having consciousness of your own. When you when you separate from your parents and you become your own self, that that is a fearful thing. It's something that's terrifying. Now, I don't 
remember what it was like. I don't think any of us remember what it was like when that happened. So I can't vouch for this. I can't say that, yes, it was terrifying. What I can tell you is that I had a mystic experience. Uh, I've told you this before, but the vision this time was of a an endless black sheet, like the expanse of space. And I could see little holes punched in the sheet, like stars shining from the other side of it. So you can imagine, if you look up at a starry night sky, imagine that that sky, the black of the sky, was like something like a, like a thin sheet that was holding back the light from the other side. And the little holes punched in it looked like stars. But, but to my understanding, that in that vision, they weren't individual stars. They seemed like individual stars. What they were, though, was little bits of light that were reflecting a much larger and more powerful ocean of light behind that black sheet. And it was fucking terrifying. Because in that vision, I sat there and looked up. I mean, I, I wasn't, I didn't have a body. It was just, you know, just awareness. Experiencing this very, very domestic scene of outer space, you know? But I knew that what was tearing through those little punctures, what, what looked like stars, were in fact terrifying and powerful waves of whatever that light was, tearing through this veil of reality. Whatever was on the other side was so enormous and so powerful, it was roaring. It was roaring. It was deafeningly roaring and, and pushing hard against that, against that sheet. And I knew that if the sheet were to tear, if it were to give way, or if those holes that, that look like stars were to open up wider, that I would be washed away by it. You know? It was, it was a feeling of awe and fear. It was a terrifying, stupefying fear. I couldn't run from it. I couldn't flee from it. I was just staring at it, you know? And if that's any indication of what it might be like to free yourself from unity with God and for the first time look back from this dissociated perspective and see the thing that you that you are as though it's another as though it's a separate from you and how dwarfing that must be and how terrifying it must be to open up your eyes for the first time and to see in front of you this monstrous thing and it's strange to it's strange to call potentiality or God a monstrous thing, but that seems like a fair assessment of what it would seem like if the first time you opened your eyes, you found yourself this tiny, minuscule nothing confronting this infinite, powerful everything. It's the idea that once you free yourself as consciousness, that you stand alone in opposition to it. And fear seems appropriate, right? And that reminds me again of the Bible, which says fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And you might ask yourself why that is. I think it's because, because it in the recognition, right? <laughs> I guess fear is a recognition of something, right? What, what, are, what you're afraid of. So to recognize the thing that you're afraid of, God is also to recognize the thing that you yourself are. So the birth of consciousness causes fear and awe. And we can see that in the, 
in the story from Genesis in chapter 2 when, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, right? In chapter 2, verse 10, it says, I heard the, thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, right? Afraid. Fear of God, right? That's what consciousness brings. Immediately, confrontation with that greater reality that you are a part of. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying if you think of yourself as an island universe, like Huxley said. If you're standing alone in opposition to all of that infinity. Alright, so Neumann says, Fear of the vengeance for the separation of the world parents and for man's criminal emancipation from the power of the divine Ouroboros is the feeling of dread and guilt, the original sin with which the history of mankind opens. So this is interesting. It's like, you know, if you're a Christian, you think about the uh, disobeying of God, or the, eating, the eating of the fruit from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. That's what we call original sin. The first time we disobeyed God, and Neumann is saying, well, that's a, that's a story that's helping us to understand this much more difficult to understand thing that happened. It wasn't that Adam and Eve disobeyed God by eating from a, from a tree. It was that consciousness split off from God, dissociated from it, you know, separation of the world parents and creating this world of experience, the world of opposites, by fracturing the consciousness that God is into an individual self. And it's that that we feel dread and guilt for. And if you think, do I feel dread and guilt? Do I feel any of that? Well, you probably do from time to time for various reasons. But there's this thing you've probably heard before. It's called existential angst. You know, oftentimes we use that word to describe teenagers, but there's this feeling that comes along with being alive that we don't exactly like. You know, it's it's existential angst, the angst um, belonging to existing, you know, just because we exist. The Buddhist said, said that life is suffering, so it gives you some idea of what existential angst is like. The Buddhists call it suffering. Schopenhauer, the philosopher, he called it restlessly striving. And I think we can... I think we can, in the first world anyway, I think we can understand this restlessly striving. It's like once our basic needs are met, we don't have to, to struggle the way that many people in the world do uh, just to survive. We still can't help ourselves but striving for more all the time. You know, why? There's something, li there's something it's like about being alive that causes this, this feeling of restlessness, constantly striving for more, for something, for we don't know what. And he said, that opens up the story of mankind. So it's the true with the story of Adam and, Evil, Adam and Eve, right? That's the beginning of the story of mankind in the Bible, but also it's the story of mankind in terms of the birth of consciousness. The moment we become conscious, we have this existential angst, this feeling of dread and guilt. So what is that about? Well, he's got to tell us. He says, The struggle against this fear is enacted in the fight with the dragon. The, vict the victorious hero stands for a new beginning, the beginning of creation. Right? So the hero is that consciousness that frees himself from, from the greater reality. That's the dragon of chaos, if we're talking mythologically. 
the, the conscious hero frees himself, becomes conscious. And that consciousness, his consciousness, the thing that was, that was, that was created, that is a new creation, a new beginning, right? It's, it's a thing just like God was, consciousness. But now it's its own consciousness. Now it's its own God. Now it can do its own creation. And, you know, we're creative beings, aren't we? Human beings. We create ourselves, our personalities. We create the skills that we, you know, develop the skills that we have, the memories that we have. We also create the world. We shape it and form it and decide what the future is going to hold. It's very godlike, human beings. Then Neumann says, Through the heroic act, the ego steps forth from the Ouroboros and finds itself in a state of loneliness and discord. Their paradisal situation is abolished. All right, so there's this hero story, this fight with the dragon, that illustrates consciousness emerging from the Ouroboros. You know, how, however that happens, creating itself, standing alone as its own being, and finds itself in opposition to the rest of reality. It's lonely, right? To be a self is to be lonely. You don't have any, you don't have, you don't have access to anybody else's private inner life. You're locked into your own head. It's a loneliness, and, it, and it's represented mythologically as the abolition of paradise. Adam and Eve leaving the Garden of Eden. Or... A human being leaving the ecstasy of fetal existence and being birthed into the world of toil and, and, and tragedy. And then he says, we may think of this paradisal situation in terms of religion and say that everything was controlled by God. He means, he means that uh, before the fall, right? Whatever the state of existence was like before the fall. He says, then everything was controlled by God. Or we might formulate it ethically and say that everything was still good and that evil had not yet come into the world. It's a very common motif. If you look at myths and fairy tales in these primordial stories, they'll talk about the golden age, you know, time the, the time before, you know, the, the, the last era. And it was something that uh, is, was described as a time before evil. You know, even the even the garden, uh, garden of Eden before the Adam and Eve ate the apple was a time before evil, in a manner of speaking. He says other myths dwell on the effortlessness of the golden age, when nature was bountiful and toil, suffering, and pain did not exist. Others stress the everlastingness, the deathlessness of such an existence. Common to all these early stages, is that they tell us something about a pre-ego stage when there is no division into a conscious and an unconscious world. All these stages are pre-individual and collective. And we do see these stories, stories of the Golden Age. There's a couple of them that come to my mind, but one of them from ancient Greece talks about the creation of human beings and how they went through these stages where the gods created them first from gold and they were perfect beings, you know, and then of silver and then of bronze and then of earth, and that's... And that's the age that we exist in now. Not, not dissimilar from the biblical story, right? Where God takes clay from the earth and makes us out of it. Um, the Hopi Indians have a similar story about these, um, these different uh, worlds that came in, and gone. Um, we live in the fifth one. And each world gets destroyed and a new world born. And according to the Hopi, we're in number five. And if you go back to number one, this was a golden age. It was a time before sin and suffering. And, and we tell myths about this. 
a time before time, a time before being, a perfect time, a golden age. And what Neumann is pointing to is that these stories are telling us something about a pre-ego time, about a time before we existed consciously, about an unconscious time, which is something like, which is something like God. These stories are pointing to what existed before this, the potential that allowed this existence to come into being. So it's something like proof. These stories are proof that there was something before experience, before consciousness. And he says, primitive man is haunted by the consciousness that he is to blame for everything negative that befalls. So this is something like that existential angst. You know, you can, you can hear that nihilistic teenager that might say something like, the world would be better if human beings never existed at all. You know, that's, that's recognition of this blame and guilt that we carry, and we don't know why and where it comes from. What does that mean? Well, I think it goes back to what, what I said before about the will of God being the only will. And then when consciousness starts to stand on its own, suddenly there's another will, and it might be able to compete or contrast with the will of God. And it's like, evil exists as a consequence of having one's own will. When the will of God or nature no longer corresponds to yours, then there's evil. In that way, yes, man is guilty of everything negative, because it's only so in relation to his will. If we weren't individual conscious beings, if we were still one with God, there would be no evil. It's our insistence that we exist. It's our insistence that we be individual consciousness, individual consciousness that allows our will to differ from the will of God. So yes, in that way, we are guilty of something. And Neumann says, there falls to man and to man alone the essential mark of relatedness because he enters into relations with an object be it another man, a thing, the world, his own soul, or God. He then becomes part of a higher unity based on opposition. So it's something like relatedness is the world of being, the world that we experience. It's a world of relationships, of opposites. It's how dissociated consciousness participates in its greater unity, after becoming dissociated in the first place. It's like we were once one with God. And once we separate from that unity, from the Ouroboros, then we now participate in the rest of reality. Right? We're still one with God, even though we're dissociated from, from our unity. So rather than being one, we have this feeling of participating in it. And that's our way of continuing to be one. It's how we become part of a greater reality by participating in it. I think that's related to Carl Jung's saying so many times in the Red Book that living our lives is the way. He uses the way like a Taoist would use the way. You know, the way um, to exist, you know, um, the right way. And he says that, that you can't be two things at once, but you can live both things. It, it, the way he describes it is like living life 
is the process of perfecting yourself, that you have to live your life. That's the kind of the whole point. All right, he goes on, he says, It is no longer possible for an object to be loved and hated at the same time. Ego and consciousness identify themselves with one side of the opposition and leave the other in the unconscious. So long as the ego is unaware of this, it remains oblivious of the other side. The separation is like being cut off from a larger context. On the personalistic level, it is felt as separation from the mother's body. Mythologically, it is correlated with original sin and the loss of paradise. So, once we become a consciousness in and of ourselves, we can no longer have opposites in union, right? It's no longer possible for love and hate to exist at the same time. Now we have to pick. So we choose, and that's a moral act. You know, going back to Jordan Peterson, anytime we choose something, what we're saying is it's good. What we're choosing is good, better than all other alternatives. And so it's a moral act. To be conscious is to make choices. And to make choices is a moral act. And this is how morality gets sucked into the religious conversation. Um, because it's part, of, it's part of being a conscious creature. To make decisions. It's unavoidable. That is a moral act. And so whatever side we choose, um, you know, that's the side we identify with. And whatever we don't become unconscious, right? They're, they're still part of us because things are ultimately still a unity. We've dissociated from that unity. And so whatever part we don't attach to ourselves become unconscious. And to us, it's almost like they don't exist anymore. And so we feel ourselves cut off, he says, from a larger context. What does that mean? Well, it's like what we are is one with the universe. What we are is all things all at once. Really? And when we dissociate from that, we cut ourselves off from all of that. And we become just ourselves in, in this participation relationship with the rest of reality. Then he says, how powerful these archetypal images of the psyche are can be seen in the Lorian Kabbalah. So for those of you who don't know Kabbalah, it's a mystical um, branch of Judaism, or it's a mystical practice within Judaism. As far as I know, it's, it originates in the Middle Ages. I don't know a whole, a whole great deal about it, but some. Um, so in this Kabbalah, uh, we, we have a quote that goes like this. Man is not only the end purpose of creation, nor is his dominion limited to this world alone, but on him depends the perfection of the higher worlds, and of God himself. Whew, buddy, on man depends the perfection of God himself. The hair is just standing up on my arms when I read that. Um, all right, so this business about man's dominion not being limited to this world, it, it's a, that is a reference to the, the greater context that we were just talking about, right? So, so man has dominion over his own being, his own consciousness. But his consciousness is more than that, right? It's it's ultimately God and everything wrapped up in one. We've dissociated from that. But remember, we man has dominion over not just this world, but also that world, the unconscious world, the world of God. And then he says, 
And on, on that basis, man depends, uh, excuse me, God, God depends on man for perfection. And that harkens back to this idea of process that we talked about before. Remember the, the circuit going back and forth between, the con, between consciousness and the unconscious. There's a process here that's the process of perfecting God. Now, I don't know exactly what that could mean, you know, because God is often, is often um, conceptualized as perfect, you know, or, or that which, you know, nothing more perfect can even be imagined. And I think there's something more beautiful behind this that says that that, that that perfection is tied to God's being infinite, right? The, the perfection is a, a process that doesn't end. It just keeps going. It's not, it doesn't end. It's an infinite process. So perfection is not a static thing, but a continual process of becoming. I love that. Especially in light of the fact that, that God and man are creative beings, you know. And Neumann says, In the great religions, the separation of the world parents is interpreted as sin. Emancipation is in reality the fundamental liberating act of man, which establishes him as a conscious individual. This act entails sacrifice and suffering. So what is what do you sacrifice to become, you know, an I, to become an individual? Well, you sacrifice that greater context. You sacrifice your unity with God. And that's one hell of a sacrifice. And that's and mythologically, that's the sacrifice of paradise, you know? And so this idea of um the separation of the world parents as original sin, it's an interesting it's an interesting idea, but it does relate back to this idea of guilt, right? As if our existence is what damaged the deity, if it's what fractured God in, into you know multiple you know multiple beings and yourself included. This existential angst you feel that you don't know why you feel and you can't get rid of, he's saying it's actually something like guilt for your own existence. Isn't that amazing? Because your existence requires it requires some damage to the deities, a separation of opposites. All right, then he says, the splitting of the world parents, excuse me, the splitting of the world into subject and object, inside and outside, and good and evil, are only discriminated with the expulsion from the Ouroboric Garden of Paradise, where the opposites lie down together. And soon as man becomes conscious, he feels himself a divided being, since he also possesses a formidable other side, which resists the process of becoming conscious. All right, so there's a whole bunch here, but I think it's interesting when he talks about this paradise idea, and he talks about the Garden of Eden, you know, as the image of that paradise. We can also talk about the fetal existence, where you're where you're existing inside your mother, and you're not your own self yet, and all your needs are met, and you don't have a will or a worry in the world. That that's also something like being in the Garden of Eden. It's a paradisal state, and he calls that a state where opposites lie down together. So you can see that the idea of the Ouroboros there, opposites in union. But when he says the opposites lie down together, it just reminds, reminds you of biblical uh, passages. So Isaiah says 
The wolf shall, shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. So you see, you see that language in Isaiah. Then when he says he feels himself a divided being, you know, that again, that's a reference to the existential angst, to the re- restlessly striving, you know, to our seeking completion. Uh, it reminds me of an um, uh, ancient Greek story about the creation of human beings. They were created originally as a hermaphrodite, as both man and woman, as a perfect creature. And um, and that eventually ended, right? And human beings had to be divided into man and woman separately, where they used to be together. And so that's obviously symbolic, but it, it shows you the idea of what we're seeking. You know, what are we restlessly striving for? Because nothing ever seems to satisfy us. So you might wonder what it is that we're seeking. And the answer might be completion, wholeness. You know, we, we're seeking to to get that other side of us that we've been dissociated from, our, our larger context, to get that back. And that's symbolized in the, in the marriage ceremony. You know, the man and the woman, the masculine and the feminine coming together. The opposites are rejoined. And new creation happens. Children are born to married couples, you know, and it's this ritual um, that we live, that we live out. It's like an imitation of, of, of the creation that, that, uh, that God did. We're imitating it. We're becoming the Ouroboros and birthing something new into the world. It's amazing. Then he says, The heinous deed of separating the world parents appears as original guilt, but it is the world parents the unconscious itself, which makes the accusation and not the ego. The Ouroboric unconscious struggles hard to prevent the emancipation of her son, consciousness. So long as the conscious ego bows down before this accusation, it is behaving like the son lover, and like him will end in self-destruction. Remember, the son lover hasn't is the, is the symbol of consciousness that's still attached to the to the great mother goddess. It hasn't it hasn't separated itself fully and become its own self, so it's doomed to die. Now, this bit when he, when he says we have this guilt, original sin, um, that it stems from our existence, from the fact that we exist, because we know our existence means we've fractured off from from God. We've damaged God somehow. Um, he says that it is the world parents, the unconscious itself, which makes the accusation. That's where the guilt comes from. And this is an interesting, this is an interesting picture because, because where the guilt you're feeling comes from is you. It's the unconscious part of you, right? It's the part of you that is God. It's the greater context that you've dissociated yourself from, but it's still a part of you. It's just not no longer accessible to you because you've split off from it. But you're still you're still getting the guilt, right, from the thing that you've separated yourself from. And it's so what it makes it sound like is that the feeling of guilt is evidence for the existence of the thing. It's evidence for God. It's evidence for the fact that you have this unconscious part of yourself. Why? Because you feel the guilt of having separated from it. You don't know where it comes from, and you can't do anything about it. It's amazing. Then he says, It is very different when the son turns the tables upon the terrible mother and adopts her destructive attitude, directing it not against himself, but against her. 
This process is represented mythologically in the fight with the dragon and the raising of the buried treasure, knowledge. So in all of these hero stories, um, very commonly it's the dragon that, that the hero is fighting with, but not always. Um, but in every case, these hero stories are a, um, are a retelling of the story of our consciousness breaking free from, from its source. The struggle against the dragon to become our own conscious self. Every story, you know, uh, Beowulf and Grindel, uh, you know, all the comic book stories, all the religious stories, they're all telling you, all these heroes are telling you the same thing. And what's needed for the hero to be successful is to, well, he's, he, he, just, he just said, he said, you, you adopt the attitude of the terrible mother and use it against her. So that's something that Jung would call integration, right? You find something unconscious within you, a power, and you make it your own. And then you use it against those things that, that challenge you. And you can win, you know, great treasure that way. You can, you, can, you can win new things. You can bring new things into the world by struggling with the dragon. That brings me to the next section which is short, but it's called Integrating the Serpent. All right, Neumann says, This destruction is closely associated with the act of eating and assimilation. The formation of consciousness goes hand in hand with the fragmentation of the world continuum into separate objects, parts, which can only then be assembled, taken in, made conscious, in a word, eaten, Okay, so this is interesting. This is the idea of integration, of taking, of bringing something into yourself, incorporating it into yourself. And, and the symbol of this is to eat something, you know, to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge. You're going to see this eating uh, 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 motif coming up in the myths and the stories. And he references one. He says, When the sun hero, having been swallowed by the dragon of darkness, cuts out its heart and eats it, he is taking into himself the essence of this object. So, so this is a meta story. You know, he, he's referencing uh, a hero being eaten by the dragon, and while he's in the dragon's belly, he eats the dragon's heart and can free himself with the power he gains from it. That this is something we see all over the place. I mean, you could even talk about Jonah being swallowed by the whale in the Bible. Um, there's all sorts of all sorts of stories like this. Um, there's also a parallel that comes to my mind. It's not exactly it's not exactly a parallel, but it's interesting, I'll tell you. Can't remember what tribe it is, but um I, I was watching a documentary one time about a tribe in Africa, sub Saharan Africa, where when the matriarch of the community dies, you know, the grandmother, the great grandmother, when that very important person in, in the tribe dies, there's a ritual that's done. Where they, it's a cannibalistic ritual. What they do is they, they remove her uterus and her ovaries and, and things like that, and then the women of the tribe have a ceremony where they, they eat it. And you might think that's weird, maybe it is, but what it, it's what it's clearly symbolizing is these young women in the tribe are eating. They're eating the womb, right, of the matriarch where all these women in the tribe came from. And they're supposed to be absorbing her fertility by doing that. They're passing that her powerful fertility along to the, all the young women in the tribe who will then go on to have more, more members of the tribe, right? 
So you see this example of eating as a way of absorbing the power of the matriarch. And in this story, the dragon, I think it's interesting, right? Because the dragon eats the hero. But then the hero from within eats the dragon. Isn't that interesting? It mirrors the yin and the yang symbol of the Ouroboros, right? They have eaten one another and integrated one another. It's, it's a paradox, you know, and that, that whenever paradoxes emerge, it always reminds me of mystic intuition. That's always an accompanying feeling. You know, how can the hero eat the dragon when the dragon's already eaten the hero? Right? They've eaten each other. They've integrated each other. The consciousness becomes a little, a little, you know, a little bit unconscious, and the unconscious becomes a little conscious. And I wonder if this is how man perfects God, right? If this harkens back to what Neumann said about this interaction between being and non-being, between the conscious and the unconscious, being a process of perfecting God. That brings me to my next bit here, which. I'm calling ritual, imitating God. All right, Neumann says, In his rituals, mankind makes himself the responsible center of the cosmos. On him depends the rising of the sun, the fertility of the crops, and all the doings of the gods. Okay, so this has always felt strange to me and never made a lot of sense until now. So this is really cool. It's like, Ancient people, pr- primitive people, um, and Stone Age people and all that, they, they do exactly what he's describing. You know, you can see all the different sacrificial rites that were done. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about sacrificing children to Moloch. We know about sacrifices that took place in the Aztec and Mayan world. You know, there's all sorts of other examples in Europe and Asia of, of different types of sacrifice and rituals that are done. And you might wonder, Why? Why do people, ordinary people, think that they have to do something, say a prayer, sacrifice an animal, light a fire, gather together? Why do people think they have to do a rain dance? Why do they have to do something to keep the cosmos doing what it's supposed to do? Why, why did man ever think that they could do something at all, especially something arbitrary like a dance? And, and that was going to help the world to tick. Why? Where'd that come from? You know, they literally think that if they don't kill the children and roll their heads down the Aztec monuments, that the the crops might fail or the rain won't come. And people take it upon themselves to do these rituals to keep the world moving like it should. And I always wondered why, and, and here he says, mankind makes himself the responsible center of the cosmos. And so that tells the whole story, right? Because when... Consciousness fractures off from the rest of the world and becomes its own conscious, you know, center. It is a microcosm of God. It is God. It is the image of God, right, that the Bible will talk about. It's just a little mirror of God. It's fractured off of the greater body. So it now looks at the world through the perspective of its ego. Just like you and I, we feel and many very important ways, like we are the center of the universe, right? The whole world revolves around me, you know? That's how we all feel to some degree. So just becoming conscious makes you feel like you're the center of the world. And of course, being yourself God makes you feel responsible for the, for the cosmos and its operations. So 
And under those circumstances, you might find yourself inventing rituals to do acts that only you can do as the center of the world, as God's representative, right? To make sure things continue like they're supposed to. So taking on the responsibilities of God is recognition of oneself as God, right? This reminds me of a, I don't know, it might have been the Twilight Zone, but it was something like this sci-fi sort of story about a clone, you know, who, who over the course of the story doesn't realize he's a copy and then at the end finds out that he's not the real, not the real version, right? He's a clone. And, uh, you know, when he realizes he's not the real one and that um, his existence is simultaneously real and kind of not real. It's like it's simultaneously real and an illusion. He's, he's a clone. He's not the real one. And, and this comes to mind. I don't know why, but it comes to mind when I think about man made in the image of God. And when I think about man pretending to be God in these rituals, it's like there's something right about that. And there's something wrong about that. And Neumann goes on. He says, The immortal soul of the divine king Osiris becomes the immortal soul of each and every Egyptian, even as Christ the Savior becomes the Christ soul of every Christian, the self within us. In the same way, the lawmaking function, originally attributed to God, has become his inner court of conscience. So you, you can see here an illustration of how man sees himself as God, right? In the ancient Egyptians, they had this God, Osiris, and yet every Egyptian thought of themselves as a, well, as a manifestation of Osiris, as carrying around Osiris with them, as being the living, the living embodiment of the God. And Christians say very similar things about carrying around Christ in their soul, you know? And Neumann describes it as the self within us. And that's another reference to the greater context that we came from. You know, the unconscious part of ourself. We know there's a, there's a whole other part of us, maybe the largest part of us. But we don't know it exactly because it's unconscious. It's the God part. It's the unknown self within us. And then he makes another reference here to how human beings become... Sitting in place of God, you know, it's not just in the rituals where they're keeping the cogs turning and the planets moving and the rain falling. It's 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 a moral function as well. Right? He says the law making function, which originally was attributed to God, right? God makes the rules. Just ask Moses; he'll tell you. But human beings, right, have this feeling of a conscience. We have this feeling of right and wrong, and so we have an intuition of. The moral reality, you know, and it's not, and it's something that's unconscious, right? It's not something we have control over. We just know we experience a thing, we hear an argument, and we know whether it's right or wrong, whether it's good or bad, good or evil. So we become like that law-making God, like we carry that thing around in our hearts. And then Neumann says, through emancipation, the ego becomes the hero, the story of the hero as set forth in the myths, is the history of this self-emancipation of the ego, struggling to free itself from the power of the unconscious and to hold its own against overwhelming odds. Hmm. 
And those overwhelming odds are the thing that we're fearful of, you know, the unknown, the unknown part of ourselves, that greater part of ourselves, that greater context, the unconscious, God. It's amazing. Brings me to my conclusion. We began this parallel journey of the origin of the cosmos and of consciousness with the Ouroboros. The Ouroboros was pre-ego existence, where all opposites reconcile in unity. It is all meaning all at once. The mythological golden age, the paradise of non-being, the comfort and satisfaction of fetal existence within a greater reality we call the nurturing mother. What comes next, the birth of consciousness and separation of the world parents, is seen paradoxically as both the great primordial hero story and as original sin. The fall of man was in reality its dissociation from the whole of reality, its emancipation into the newly created world of opposites. This new world is a world of its own creation, birthed together with the ego. It is the same world as the unconscious Ouroboros, but is forever changed by the possibility of experience. Experience forces the Ouroboros through the lens of the ego so that it exists in relation to the ego. Experience tears reality into subject and object. The consequence of the separation of the world parents into the world of opposites leaves us with a sense of incompleteness. We search and yearn without end and never seem to know exactly why. This is the nature of the human being. As Schopenhauer said, we are restlessly striving. But for what? We want more and more. But for what? For a sense of wholeness. For a reunion with that which we are not conscious of in ourselves. This is what we call existential angst. The discomfort and dissatisfaction implicit in being alive. We do not realize that we are seeking a remedy for the dissociation that caused our very existence. We wish to unify again with the rest of ourself, with the unconscious. We cannot help it. We find ourselves in a world of relatedness, of relationships, with ourselves at the center. We participate in these relationships as a means of trying to become one with them again. While this comes close to unification, it begs for something deeper. It begs for integration, not mere relatedness. And so the ego seeks to make conscious all that it can from the infinite unconscious. Just as the unconscious pulls the ego back into itself and into death. It is this back and forth, this dance of the conscious and unconscious, which Neumann calls a continuum that coursed through man like a current of life. This is the process we might call God. Neumann called it a circuit flowing from the unconscious to the world and from the world back to the unconscious. And on this process, he tells us, depends the perfection of God.
Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.